So Monday a week ago, I was in Houston dropping my oldest daughter Hannah off at a technology camp at Rice University. And I used to work at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston, and one of my former colleagues is still there, and so we made plans to meet for lunch. But when I went to start our old minivan to go to lunch, it wouldn't start, and I couldn't believe it because I had just replaced the alternator and the battery just a few weeks ago. How could this be happening? Well, I called my friend and said, hey, could you come over and help me jumpstart my car so that I can take it to a mechanic? It must be the starter. I mean, I'm not a mechanic, but if it's not the alternator and it's not the battery, it's probably the starter. So he came over and we jumpstarted my car and we dropped it off in a mechanic. And we had lunch together and talked about how grateful we were that this was on a Monday and not Tuesday the next day. Because the next day, Tuesday, I would have to catch a flight from Houston to Minnesota to go to a meeting of pastors within our denomination. Well, $400 and six hours later, I had a new starter. And I took my car from the mechanic and parked at my friend's house. And the next morning, I got up to go to the airport. And I put the keys inside of my minivan with its new starter, a new alternator, a new battery. And I turned the keys. And yet again, it would not start. How could this be happening? And I looked at my watch and I became very anxious, very fast. Because I knew I had over a 30-minute drive in Houston traffic to try and get to the airport in time. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. Have you ever wondered whether or not you're going to make it? You're worried about whether or not you can make it on time. Now, just to complete the story, because I told that at 8.30 and people are like, did you make it? Um, By God's providence and grace, I saw a pickup truck just right across the street. The guy I was staying with, Trey Little, who was our Morris preacher, if you remember, a few months ago. Uh, He's the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Houston. I was staying at his house. I saw a huge truck across the street and said, that would be the perfect vehicle to jumpstart my minivan. So I went across the street, rang the doorbell, and a woman in her slippers and cup of coffee opened the door and she said, can I help you? Kind of wondering. And I pulled the pastor line and said, well, I'm the pastor of First Presbyterian Church at Amarillo, and I've been hanging out with Trey Little, the pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church here in Houston at his house, and my car won't start, and I've got to catch a plane to go to a pastor's meeting. Can I, could you use your truck to help jumpstart my car? And she says, well, you won't believe this, but I go to Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston. Love to help my Presbyterian pastor friends. So we made friends, thanks be to God, for Stephanie, a faithful member of Memorial Drive. But I didn't know if I was going to make it even after she jump-started me. I raced through Houston traffic, tried to catch my flight on time. Have you ever wondered whether or not you're going to make it? You know, as we're children playing athletics for the first time, we begin to get into that competitive stage of athletics around high school. And well, we wonder whether or not we're going to be good enough to make the team. Or maybe we make the team and we're wondering, are we going to be good enough to be on the starting squad? Or we're in school and we're, we're doing all that we can in our academics to make the grades or, or to make the SAT score or the ATC, ACT score, wondering whether or not we're, our grades and our scores are going to be good enough to get into that college that we want to attend. Or fast forward, we're now parents raising kids, hoping that they'll make it. But then we begin to wonder, are we going to have enough money to pay for the school that they get into Yes, we can always wonder about whether or not we're going to make it. Will we have enough to to pay for that college? Will we have enough for retirement? Are we going to make it? The dreaded diagnosis comes for our loved one. The treatment begins. And we begin to wonder and worry whether or not our loved one is going to make it. And if they don't make it, we wonder how are we going to make it without them? Will our loved one make it? Will our children make it? Will our grandchildren make it? 
Our lives can be filled with anxiety, worrying, wondering about whether or not we're going to make it. As we continue our journey through First and Second Thessalonians this summer, we can see that the Thessalonians had the very same question. They were wondering whether or not they were going to make it. In Second Thessalonians, we can see that the Thessalonians can continue to experience persecution for their newfound faith in Jesus. And some of the church have already died before Jesus has returned. And so they're anxious. And now they're hearing rumors that the day of the Lord has already come and somehow they missed it. They missed that plane to glory and now they've been left behind and they're all worried whether or not they're going to have the faith to make it. When we begin to worry and become anxious about whether or not we're going to make it, what should we do? Let's listen to what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians that they should do in the midst of their anxiety. Please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It may be found on page 1259 of your Red Pew Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper, to write a letter of comfort to that church in Thessalonica. Oh God, as we turn to your word this morning, may your spirit speak to us that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray in all God's people said, amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? You know that this, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave, him, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The Thessalonians have heard from others that the day of the Lord has already come, and Paul says, no, no, don't worry, it hasn't happened yet. Don't you remember what I told you first? The son of lawlessness The son of destruction must come. Things must get much worse before they get better. There's going to be a great rebellion. In fact, he calls him the son of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Or as the apostle John calls him in his epistles, the Antichrist must come before Jesus returns. Now, if you know anything about the Antichrist as he's described in scripture, you know that he's a really bad dude. The Antichrist will be very evil and have all kinds of powers to do false signs and false wonders. He will be an instrument of Satan who will seek to deceive others to worship him rather than worship God. And according to Paul, the Antichrist isn't going to be fully revealed until the rebellion takes place before things get much, much worse. Now, does that comfort you? Does it comfort you to know that the, well, things have to get worse before they're going to get better? That the Antichrist, this evil man of great power, has to come before Jesus returns? It doesn't really comfort me. I mean, frankly, as I look at these first seven verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm, I'm a little scared, but then I find comfort, great comfort, in verse 8. For in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, And then the lawless one will be revealed after the rebellion, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Like a little girl blowing on a dandelion. I think we have a picture of that. Like a little girl blowing on a dandelion, so the Antichrist will be destroyed with the very breath of Jesus when he returns in all of his glory. Yes, the comfort is not found in the fact that the Antichrist must come and and lead people astray. The the comfort is found that when the Antichrist comes, that means Jesus is coming real soon. And when Jesus returns, he will show in all his glory that he is infinitely more power than the Antichrist, the son of destruction. Yes, it's true, things will get worse before they get better. But when Jesus returns in all his glory, he will destroy the Antichrist with the very breath of his mouth. The return of Jesus will be made known to all. We won't miss it. It it will be impossible for us not to see the return of Christ. For as Jesus explains in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, when his disciples ask him about the, the final days, in Matthew 24, 15 to 31, Jesus tells his disciples, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's the passage that uh, 
Pamra just a moment ago. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so that they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. They say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Notice that Jesus says when he returns, he will gather the elect from the four winds, from the four corners, from one end of heaven to the other. You know, as Presbyterians, we're often pegged as the frozen chosen. You know, our, the, the theologian who helped start the Presbyterian Church, which is the type of government that we govern ourselves where we're elder-led, is, is John Calvin. And he wrote about predestination and election, but it wasn't the primary focus of his writings. And, and in fact, he didn't invent it. He didn't make it up. Jesus talks about the elect. Paul writes about being chosen and predestination. In fact, John Calvin doesn't explain the doctrine of predestination and election until chapter 21 of book 3 of his institutes, four-volume institutes of the Christian religion. Election is not the focus of Calvin's writings. When Calvin writes about election and predestination, he does it to a Christian audience, seeking to offer them a word of comfort to help them better understand God's amazing grace. For Calvin writes in Book 3, chapter 21, he says this, We shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until he comes to know his eternal election, which illumines God's grace. The fact that God chooses us before the foundation of the world, as the apostle Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 1, The fact that God chooses us and initiates our relationship with him, the fact that God loves us before we ever love him, is a complete gift of God's grace. Our election, the fact that God has chosen us, should make us that more grateful for God's grace. It deepens our understanding of God's grace, God's unmerited favor. It's not about what we've done. It's about God's sovereign will who's chosen to love us who's chosen to send his son to save us. Notice in verse 13 of our text, Paul offers a word of comfort to remind them that they were, well, that they were chosen. 
Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose to reveal himself to the Thessalonians by the preaching of Paul, by sending the Apostle Paul to the church of Thessalonica so that he might preach the gospel and they might have ears to hear the good news of God's love. His Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that God chose them, for God called them through the gospel that Paul preached to them. So that even though this life is hard and even though they're facing persecution and things are not easy, God has chosen to love them and God is not going to abandon them. God will be with them to the very end. God is going to make sure that no matter what happens, they will make it. Now in the Presbyterian Church, we describe this biblical doctrine of making it to the end as the perseverance of the saints Simply put, once saved, always saved. As Jesus states in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, 27 to 28, when speaking about his disciples, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My brothers and sisters, the good news is that Jesus Christ will never let go of us. We may stray, we may stumble, we may fall, we may rebel, but God never lets go of us. He continues to hold on. We will, in fact, persevere to the very end. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains it. In fact, it's in your bulletin this morning. You can see as the affirmation of faith. I'm going to have you affirm later this opening line from chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. We may stumble. We may fall. We may rebel against God. We may even think that we're letting go of God, but God, Jesus Christ, never lets go of us. Yes, my friends, we're going to make it because Jesus made it. Please turn to your neighbors and tell them, don't worry, we're going to make it because Jesus made it. Don't worry, we're going to make it because Jesus made it. Amen? The snow caps may melt, the water levels may rise, the floods may come, the earth may give way, and the mountains may stumble into the heart of the sea, as Psalm 46 states. But we shall not fear. We know that we're going to make it because Jesus made it. He made a way for us. For Jesus came to this earth as the Son of God to save us. He's not going to abandon us and leave us behind. We are too important in his eyes. He loves us too much to leave us. As he states in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, when speaking to his disciples, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. As the Apostle Paul explains in Romans, chapter 5, 8, God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us because he loves us, not because we were deserving of his love, but because he's chosen to love us to send his son to to teach us, to heal us, and ultimately to die for us is the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we we might be received 
and united with Christ and have the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us as a gift if we simply believe in him. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again and conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we might have the full assurance of eternal life if we simply believe in him and receive this free gift of grace that God has given to us. Yes, we know as followers of Jesus, we're going to make it because Jesus made it. We know that because Jesus lives, we too shall live, that death does not have the final say for those who call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we can see clearly that we have been chosen by God and we've been called by God through the gospel. But for what exactly? Have we been chosen and called by God so that we might simply sit around and wait for Jesus to come back and take us up into glory? No. For as we continue to read 2 Thessalonians, you'll see that some have become idle in the church in Thessalonica, and and Paul rebukes them and says, no, you must go to work. There's a good work that God has prepared beforehand for which you are to do. Knowing that God has chosen me doesn't make me complacent. It makes me grateful, grateful for God's amazing grace. In response to that grace, I want to live a life in obedience to Christ. As Paul had mentioned earlier, I want the Holy Spirit to sanctify me. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified by the Spirit exactly? Well, sanctification, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is a fancy theological term that simply means to be made holy, to be made more in the image of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be holy, to be set apart, to obey God's holy word. And through an act of faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to transform our lives from the inside out so that we begin to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit that Paul writes about in Galatians. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now on our own, we cannot manufacture these gifts. We can try real hard to be more loving, but we will not truly be the loving people of God we are called to be until we first receive God's love and then become a conduit of God's love. So how can we put ourselves in position so that the Holy Spirit might begin to transform us from the inside out? Well, as Murray mentioned last week, we need to practice spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices like Jesus and the earliest disciples did. We need to pray. Because before Jesus began his His ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. Now, I would not recommend a 40-day fast. You'd probably die from doing that. But but certainly, it's a good thing to fast and pray. Maybe do a 24-hour fast where you you have a a, a big lunch and then you skip dinner and skip breakfast the next day and then have a lunch and end your 24-hour fast. And while you're fasting, rather than grumbling about not having food, feast on the Word of God. Read and meditate on God's Word. Spend time in solitude and silence as as Jesus would often do. After feeding the 5,000, he he went away to pray, to be alone with his heavenly Father. Yes, we need to practice these spiritual disciplines of of meditating and praying and and spending time in Christ-centered fellowship like a Bible study or, or Sunday school class or some type of small group where we can share life together as we study God's word together. We need to make these spiritual practices a, a habitual rhythm of our lives. Then the Holy Spirit will use these practices to begin to transform us and make us more holy, to cleanse us from the inside out. Reminds me of when I was single, I went to the dentist, and uh, for the first time in a long time, I I had a cavity. This was before I was married, and I I had a cavity, and I couldn't believe it because I brushed in the morning, I brushed in the evening. And so the the dentist asked me, he said, well, do you floss? I floss. How often do you floss? 
Uh, every now and then. And that was not good enough. And he began to give me a 10-minute lecture on the importance of flossing, making sure you get that floss in between your teeth to get those particles of food so that you don't have any cavities. Well, that night he put the fear of cavities in my heart and mind, and so I, I bought a bunch of floss, and I've been flossing ever since. I haven't had a cavity since, thanks be to God. But while I was in Minnesota, I ran out of dental floss. And I'd eaten corn for dinner. It was a bad scene. And I was brushing as best I could to try and get those pieces of corn and getting toothpicks. And and I didn't feel satisfied until I was able to get floss the next day. Yes, if you begin these spiritual practices and do them enough, when you skip a day, when you you stop reading God's word just for a day, you'll you'll miss it. You'll feel like you didn't do something you should have done. We need to develop that spiritual practice of meditating on God's word. As Paul will go on to remind the Thessalonians that they, well, they need, to, they need to stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Those traditions, those promises, those words of God and the apostles, the traditions of Jesus. It says we take time to meditate and pray God's word, or as the apostle Paul states in verse 15, to hold to the traditions they were taught by the apostles, then we will find peace in knowing that because Jesus made it, we're going to make it as well. And we know that we've been called by God not only to to be saved, but to be sanctified, to be made holy. And for what purpose? Is it not to preach the gospel to others? For the Thessalonians were saved because Paul went to preach the gospel to them. and, And his word had great power because Paul was living into this relationship with Jesus. He exhibited God's love. I just drove from Missouri, the show me state. And in Missouri, words are cheap, right? Show me what you believe. Show me in actions. Actions speak louder than words. If we want our message of this saving love, of God's amazing love, of God's electing love to have power, then we've got to be a conduit of God's love. We've got to exhibit it. As Paul writes in that final verse of our text this morning, in both work and word. May we take the time we need to sow to the Spirit, to connect to Christ, so that the word of Christ might be lived out in and through us so that our words might have great power, knowing that we've been chosen and saved, not just for our own selves, but so that we might be a conduit of love to others so they might hear the gospel and be saved. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for your amazing love. We thank you that you're the God who has made yourself known to us in Jesus Christ and you're the God who has chosen us, called us through your gospel to be glorified in your son, to live a life as sanctified followers. We know that our faith and our sanctification is evidence of our election. So Lord, help us to live into that. Help us to sow to the spirit, to take the time we need to to listen to you by reading and meditating and praying on your word every day so that we might exhibit your love, so that we might be an instrument of your grace, so that as we share the gospel with others, it wouldn't just be in word, but it would be in power and in works in our lives that people would see how Jesus has changed our life and they'll want to hear why and they'll want to follow him as well. Oh God, we thank you for the comfort we find in your word that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that because Jesus made it, we know we'll make it as well. Help us to share that good news with others.